I have the privilege of bringing this gospel to you, the good news, from Romans 9. As we journey through the book of Romans, today we come to verse 19, and I hope to cover verse 19 through 24 in today's exposition. So kindly turn to Romans 9, and let's read from verse 1 all the way to verse 24, so that we may have that context. Please hear the word of God. Romans 9 verse 1. I am speaking the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. They are Israelites, and to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs, and from their race according to the flesh is the Christ who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. For it is not as though the word of God has failed. For not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. And not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring. But through Isaac shall your offspring be named. This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. For this is what the promise said about this time. Next year I will return and Sarah shall have a son. And not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born, and had, not done, uh, and, had, and had done nothing either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls, she was told. The older will serve the younger, as it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. We will be considering that particular verse in the afternoon from Malachi 1. Verse 14. What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, For this very purpose I have raised you up, that I might show my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then he has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. So you will say to me then, Why does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? But who are you, O oh man, to answer back to God? Will what is molded say to its molder, Why have you made me like this? Has the porter not right over the, over the clay to make out of the same lamp one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? What if God, 
desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, as endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction. In order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory, even us whom he has called, not from Jews only, but also from the Gentiles. My friends and brothers, the grass withers, the flower faints, but the word of God will stand forever. And we turn to him in prayer. Oh Lord, we look to you to bless us through your word this morning. As we consider this rebuke, help us not to answer back to you. Help us to know our place. To know that we are a lamp of clay. And if you would be pleased to make us vessels for honorable use, make us vessels of mercy, we shall be very glad. And that's our prayer, O Lord. Let every soul here be turned to be a vessel of mercy for honorable use. O Lord, we pray that uh, we will be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to be angry. For we know that the anger of man does not produce your righteousness. Grant that we will receive your word with meekness, the implanted word, which is able to save our souls. And this is your word. So bless us, Lord, for we ask in Christ's name. Amen. Imagine speaking to your four-year-old son and asking him to do certain things and then he answers back to you and he says, I want to do it. Why should I do it? Who are you that I should do it? That would be the rudest behavior you would witness in a child, isn't it? For a child to answer back to the parent, that would be an experience you would hate as a parent, right? Children are told by God to obey their parents in the Lord, for this is right, to honor their father and their mother. For this is the first commandment with a promise that it may go well with them. This is not the way it goes well with them by answering back to their parents. But consider these are the scenario. A porter. He is making various vessels. Some vessels are cups. Others are pots. And others are trash can. And the trash can turns around and says, Mr. Porter, how evil can you be to make me into a trash can 
instead of making me the most beautiful porcelain vessel. What do you think the porter is likely to say when the lamp speaks and asks the question, why have you made me like this? I'm sure the whole thing would be thrown away and it would be even more useless. Because that's the height of rebellion. What about a scenario where creatures turn around and answer back to the Creator, God, who is blessed forever? The object of this sermon is to help us maintain a healthy, creator-creature distinction. Where that creator-creature distinction is blurred, then that's a height of rebellion. And we must approach this doctrine of election with the understanding that God is God and we are the work of his hands. So the desired virtue out of his sermon is humility. Is humility. The text before us helps us in gaining this understanding of God. God is represented as the porter, and all human beings are represented as a lamp of clay. God the creator, the sovereign master porter, is pleased to make you into what he wants you to be. Some, some, some lamps would be common lamps of clay. And others would be honorable, valuable. Vessels of mercy. Vessels of honor. But also vessels of dishonor. But the context in which we get this doctrine is in the context of an objection, and this is the second objection. Remember, we considered verse 14 through 18 in the last sermon. And today we come to the second objection. And the objection is stated as follows in verse 19. You will say to me, why does he still fight fault? For who can resist his will? This is a, a strong pushback on the doctrine of election. And do you think this question maintains that balance of creator-creature distinction? It doesn't. Is it an appropriate question for a Christian to have before God? Now we are encouraged to ask questions. And we must ask questions if we're going to learn. In fact, in my life as a teacher, the children who asked lots of questions were the best students. Those who never asked any questions, you never got to know where they were. But those who asked questions, you would get to know this is what they have understood, this is what they have not understood. So you students, you need to be asking questions. 
but there is a limit to the kind of questions that you need to ask. Because a question like this is not a question asked in good spirit. It's not just the question asked. It is the manner of the question and the spirit in the question. And so Paul quotes this objector. He says, you, this is singular, the objector is one, you will say to me then, the passage is meant to, to consider what questions people have in their minds regarding this doctrine. And so this objector asked this question, why does God still find fault? Now, here is an objector who has well understood the doctrine of election. He has well understood it. And he understands that you cannot resist God's will. If God is going to show his prerogative of showing mercy to whomever he wills, because it does not depend on human will or exertion, but on God. And it depends on God showing mercy and compassion to whomever he wills and hardening whomever he wills. Then he is like, hmm. Then I have nothing to do. God will determine my fate. He has sunk into fatalism. And he is saying that, well, let God do what he wants to do, but he must not ask me anything. If I go to hell, I go to hell because of God. Because going to heaven depends on God, going to hell then also depends on God. And the question is meant to put God in his rightful place, so to say. But we must remember that God is the sovereign ruler of the skies, ever gracious, ever wise. He is over the eternal destinies of the creation that he himself has made. This question, yes, it does acknowledge God as sovereign, but the question apportions evil to God. It blames God. God must not be finding any fault in anyone. And he must not be setting people to hell. The objector thinks that he is wiser than God. And that he can teach God someday. It does not, he does not acknowledge him as God or give honor to him. Or give thanks to him. So what is the issue of the question? He is saying that if God shows mercy to some and hardens others, then he has no business blaming or faulting anyone. Regardless of their merit, God sends them to hell. Regardless of their choice, God sends them to hell. Regardless of their effort, God sends them to hell. Is that the case? Is it that God found 
a meritorious man who was walking in righteousness and uprightness of heart and godliness, and he sent him to hell, and he hardened his, hardened his heart and turned him around? Is that the case? Is it that God um, twisted someone and sent him to hell against his, his will? Is it that God causes people to sin? So the question faults God. It charges God with evil doing. The rebellion is not to think or utter the question, but rather to think that a man can apportion any blame, any fault to God. Can we demand answers from God? Can God be held accountable by his creation? Isn't this arrogance and pride at its height? Clearly, arrogance is what is behind this question. So Paul will sharply respond strongly to this question in the next verse. But before then, we must ask ourselves, do we come to God's word with humility? Do we receive his word with meekness? Do we? Or do we dispute God's word? In the book of Malachi, you have the Israelites being told by God, I have loved you. And how do they respond? Loved us? How have you loved us? That's a way some people respond, disputing what God has said. Do we respond as those who have no manners to our God, to our Creator? Do, do we treat the immortal God as our equal? Or do we realize that He is the porter and we are the clay? Because listen to the response to the objection. We read in verse 20. But who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Will what is molded say to its molder, why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lamp one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? It's a long question. The question in response to the objection captures the arrogant spirit of the objector and it rightfully addresses the arrogance, the foolishness, and the arrogance, the, the ignorance of this objector. And we need to spend some time on this verse to understand what Paul is saying to us this morning. Paul rebukes this hypothetical objector for trying to call God into question, into account. He rebukes him for requiring God to give him an answer. 
And he rebukes him for how and why he does what he, he does. Who are you, O oh man? This is a strong and a stinging rebuke to anyone who is thinking in a manner to fault God. Who are you, O oh prideful, arrogant man, to demand answers of God? Who are you, O oh man, to drag God into a human court? Who are you, O oh stubborn, silly man, to think of God so lowly? Who are you? Oh man, know your place. And what's your place? You are a puny little man. You are a little lump of clay. You are a fleck of dust. That's what we are. A lump of dirt. That's what we are before God. That's what we are before the mighty porter. God knows our frame. And what is our frame? We are dust. And soon there will be a preacher above my body lying cold in a casket and he will say, dust, from dust you came and to dust you shall return. All of us. Right now I know you don't feel like dust. I don't, but we have to remember that's what we are, dust. Who are you, oh dust, to answer back to God? To answer back to God means to snap back at God. Who dares to push back on God's word and purposes? Who is this man? Who calls God into account? Who is this lamp that demands answers from God? Who is this who questions God and even passes judgment on God? Who are you? Who are you? You turn to the book of Job. And Job has been disputing what God has been doing. And God challenges Job. And listen what God asked Job. He tells him, because Job undared to respond to God, to ask questions to God. His questions were fairly godly. But listen to how God challenges him. God says, dress for action like a man. I will question you and you make it known to me. Will you even put me in the wrong? Will you condemn me that you may be in the right? Have you an arm like God? And, and can you thunder with a voice like this? Adorn yourself with majesty and dignity. Clothe yourself with glory and splendor. 
Pour out the overflowings of your anger and look on everyone who is proud and abase him. Look. Chapter 41, he says, Can you draw out Leviathan with a fish hook or press down his tongue with a cord? Job, can you do that? Can you tame a Leviathan? Can you put a rope on his nose or pierce his jaw with a hook? Can you do that? This is irony. Sarcasm. Will he make many pleas to you? That is the Leviathan. Make many pleas to you. Oh, Job, please don't put a hook on my tongue. Don't press my tongue with that cord. Will the Leviathan be pleading with Job like this? Will he make many pleas to you? Will he speak to you soft words? Oh, Job, please don't do that. Will, will he do that? Will this Leviathan make a covenant with you to take him for your servant forever? Will you domesticate him? Will you play with him as with a bird? Or will you put him on a leash for your girls? Well, traders bargain over him. In other words, you take him to the market and you want people to, to buy him. And you will make an auction of this dragon. Will they divide him up among the merchants into pieces of meat? Can you fill his skin with harpoons that is shooting him? or his head with fishing spears? God asked the question, chapter 41, verse 11, who has first given to me that I should repay him? Whatever is under the whole heaven is mine, God says. And the question goes on and on. And on. And then finally, Job surrenders. And Job says, I know, I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. I hope this brings you to a point where you would be able to say, I know that you, God, can do all things, nothing is impossible with you and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Oh man, who are you? Now I need to say that many people, the so-called the Christians and theologians, don't like this truth. And they end up with such a foolish, irreverent, blasphemous, prideful objection. The response to this objection shows that the objector has crossed the line. He has failed to acknowledge God as a sovereign God. These people, whether they are theologians or not, need to know their place before God to submit to his word. Even Job, that righteous man Job, submitted himself to God. 
We need to humble ourselves beneath the mighty heart of God that in due season he may lift us up. So this is not a doctrine for the arrogant theologians. This is a doctrine for those who will humble themselves under the mighty hand of God. Number three, and finally, remember this, that God is the porter. God is the porter and we are the clay. It's that simple. Verse 20 goes on to say that that which is molded have no right to ask the porter, why have you made me like this? The analogy of the porter and the clay begins here. And what Paul is saying is the clay has no right whatsoever to call the porter into account for what the porter does with the clay. The question goes way too far. The objection is too much. The question is out of bounds because God is unaccountable to any of his fallen creatures for the choices that he makes. No man may call God into account and demand an explanation or even an apology for what he has done. And Paul draws this analogy of the porter not from his own imagination, but from the scriptures, from the Old Testament. It takes us to the book of Isaiah and Jeremiah. Isaiah 29 verse 16. You turn things upside down, the Bible says. Shall the porter be regarded as the clay that the thing made should say to, of its maker, it did not make me? Or the thing formed say of him who formed it, he has no understanding? What's the answer to that? The, the arrogance of the clay is addressed by asking questions. You know, some questions and some objections don't need answers. The best way to respond to some of these foolish questions and objections is not by giving an answer. It is by giving a question in return. You remember when the Pharisees came to Jesus wanting to, tempt, to test him or to tempt him. And he answered in response, the baptism of John, was it from man or was it from God? And what was the response? None. They dare not respond. And so they turned away. Answer not a fool according to his folly. Is what the Bible says. Lest he be wise in his own eyes. Isaiah 45 verse 9 is even stronger. Woe to him who strives with him who formed him. A pot among earthen pots. Exclamation mark. Does the clay say to him who forms it, what are you making? Or your work has no handles. 
Can you imagine a cup sitting right there after having been made, talking to the potter and saying, oh, Mr. Potter, you did not put handles on that dustbin. It sounds funny, isn't it? The, the clay may not call into account the potter and say, what are you doing? What have you done with my life? And what are you doing with everyone else? I need answers. I need answers right now. I need an explanation. I need it now. That would be going too far. In Isaiah 64 verse 8, we read of a more submissive attitude, but the same analogy. But now, O oh Lord, you are our Father. We are the clay, and you are the porter. We are all the work of your hand. This is what is expected of us before God. To know our place, but most importantly, to know God's place with us. We must never elevate ourselves above or higher than we are, and especially not above God. Not that we can do it, we can't. And then in, uh, the prophet Jeremiah takes us to Jeremiah 18. In the first six verses, he takes us to the porter's house, and we read, The word came to Jeremiah from the Lord. Arise and go down to the porter's house, and there I will let you hear my words. So I went down to the porter's house, and there he was working at his will. And the vessel he was making of clay was spoiled in the porter's hand. What do you think he did? He reworked it into another vessel, as it seemed good to the porter to do. Then the word of the Lord came to me, O house of Israel, can I not do with you as this porter has done? Declares Jehovah. Behold, like the clay in the, in the porter's hand, so are you in my hand, O house of Israel. Amen. So what Paul is simply drawing from the Old Testament is imagery to demonstrate the sovereign will of God over the destinies of mankind. And he uses the Old Testament text to teach us the supreme authority and sovereignty of the Almighty God over all the creatures and all their actions. Whatever the Lord chooses to do with the work of his hands, he has justified he is right to do it. God is not the one on trial. We are the ones on trial. You would help us a lot if you would turn off your phone, please. Any accusations against God's sovereignty is intolerable. His sovereign election is right and justifiable. And any litigation against God, any prosecution you might want to do against God, any charge sheet against God is unwarranted. It is sinful. You cannot take God to the court of appeal. There is no court of appeal with God. Or you cannot take God to the Supreme Court. No. There is no supreme court against God. 
And in case you are contemplating taking him to the East African Court of, of Appeal in Arusha, Paul Lesana. God is not going to go to ICC, to Hague. No, not our God. Any demand to cross-examine God is off-limits. God will not be summoned into any human court. God will not appear before the judgment seat of anyone, but you will. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ to give an account of what we've done in the body, whether good or evil. God owes no one no explanation. Yet in his mercy and grace, he has given us a whole Bible of explanations. And when he gives us one explanation that one of the ways of expressing his grace to us was that in the eternity past, before the foundation of the world, he chose us in the beloved to be holy and blameless before him. We say, wait a minute. That was wrong, because that's what this objection is about. What do we say to that? Oh man, who do you think you are? To answer back to God, to snap at God. Who do you think you are? There's a question here. God offers a solution. He says, submit to his sovereign will. Submit to him. Submit to God. And we must be content to simply accept what God has given us. He is the potter. We are nothing but the clay. And in verse 21, we see that God has a right to do with his creation as he pleases. Has the potter no right over the clay? What's the answer? Has the potter no right over the clay? Yes? No? The potter does. Surely. Now that word right, as the potter no right, that word right is or could be translated supreme authority over others. It comes with the power of choice. It means that God has all the freedom, all the liberty to do as he pleases with his creatures. This is what the Lord was saying when he gave out the Great Commission. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. That's what he said in Matthew chapter 28, verse 18. It's that word right. So the question is, does not the porter, that is God, have a right over the clay that is supreme and sovereign authority over all mankind, over all the creatures, to make from the same lump, that, that is one batch of clay, one vessel for honorable use and another vessel for common use? Can't God do that? Of course, God has the right, all the rights, 
to do that. And you know what? God does not need to patent any of his rights. He does not need, need to register any brand name or any trademark for that matter. You remember in verse 11, we found that from the same womb, God made one twin boy to be the object of his love and another twin boy an object of his hatred. Though they were not yet born and had done nothing either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue. God has different purposes for different objects that he makes. And you can do nothing about it. Is this where the doctrine of election becomes difficult? Yes? Huh? This is where the doctrine of election gets very difficult, isn't it? Yes? No. Yes. I have actually put you in a corner. Because if you say yes, then you are in the same camp with the objector. But if you say no, then I would be asking you, why did you not respond then? Being the porter, God possesses and exercises uncontested authority over one lump of clay, which is humanity. He has the right, the power, the authority, the sovereignty to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use. A vessel is a reference to an object that is made by a porter. And now we are going to make a distinction. distinction. Two things. On the one hand, we have God's display of his wrath to vessels of wrath. And we can ask why, and I will provide four answers. And on the other hand, we'll see God's display of his grace to the vessels of mercy. And we will also ask why. That's, that is in verse 22, where we encounter one other of Paul's questions which is meant to shut our mouths, quash our rebellious wills, and hopefully warm our hearts and confound our wisdom so that we draw our wisdom from God. What if God, what if God desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction? It is to say that God knows what he is doing. Don't try to teach him. And he knows what he is doing with everyone he has created. He knows who the vessel of honor is and who is the vessel of dishonor. No, you don't. 
You treat everyone as a vessel of honor, and you bring the gospel to them. He knows the vessels of wrath, and he has use for each one of them too, but you don't. Now, the word translated dishonor is the word common. It can be translated common. It means unattractive and unpolished. It may also mean vile and disgraceful or even shameful. And here's the idea. When the porter takes this clay and he begins to fashion it and then he does not finish it, he leaves it in its natural state. He doesn't polish it. He doesn't smoothen it. He doesn't vanish it. He leaves it like that. That's a, a, a vessel left common in dishonor, in shame. It's left like that. It's vile. Now, he may take it and mold it into a bowl-like vessel. But then he does not work on it so intricately to produce a refined, bradished finish. So it will not resemble a spectacular, beautiful piece of pottery with a glister. He doesn't do that. That left unpolished in its state it may not be so attractive, especially when you compare it with others that have the glister. So it will become a garbage or trash can. It is hidden at the back of the house. And you pour your refuse there. It's a vessel of dishonor or common vessel. Dishonorable vessel. God has chosen to pass over it. He's not going to set his grace and mercy upon it to refine it and to polish it and to make it that an object of his love in his son. God leaves them in their sinful, filthy, dirty state. But that's their, that's the way, that's their nature. But he has a purpose for them. But the Bible says in Proverbs 16, verse 4, God has made everything for its own purpose, even the wicked, for the day of evil. He uses these di different objects for different purposes in a different way. And so we ask the question, what could possibly be God's purpose with the reprobates? Why is it that God does not save everyone? What would be the purpose in them? Four things are stated here as the purpose for vessels of wrath, vessels of dishonor. First of all, it is to display his wrath. 
If there were no vessels of wrath, there would be no way we would have known God's wrath. God uses the reprobates to show his wrath. The vessels of dishonor are the means by which God displays his holy but fierce anger. He uses vessels of dishonor to demonstrate his righteous wrath. The common vessels are there to be the instruments for displaying God's holy indignation. The anger, wrath, and indignation is that unending enmity, hostility against them, for they hate him and have rejected his gospel and his son. They refuse to submit to his law. And so because of their rebellion, God uses them to showcase his wrath for his God of wrath. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your heart in rebellion, lest God shows his wrath upon you. This must cause us all to fear, because the Bible says that since we are receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, let us worship God acceptably with reverence and awe, because God is a consuming fire. Hebrews 12, 28 and 29. Secondly, to display his power, God uses the dishonorable vessels to display his power, to take care of rebels. Because we read here that they are not only vessels of wrath, prepared for destruction, but they are also there to show his power. What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, you know, we talk about hell, but we don't quite understand that hell consumes God's resources. When you put up fire, you must have you must have a match stick or match box or whatever to light it up, right? If you try to, to, to set up fire without that, it's not going to be fire. Okay, you have your match box. You want to set up fire. You must have enough fuel. What if you wanted that fire to burn for eternity? How much fuel, whether firewood or whatever you need to have, to have? How much? Well, you can't even begin saying tons and tons because that would not do. I mean, this is eternity. Now, remember then that God keeps the hell burning for all eternity and he maintains it. What is that? Power, isn't it? Now, think about the devil who has been tormenting God's people ever since the Garden of Eden. And God grabs him and he throws him into the lake of fire. Effortlessly. Think about all the rebellious people. I mean, they, they are such a... They, they use a lot of our taxes, isn't it? Consider the amount of money the government uses 
to restrain evil in the land. And sometimes they become too many that the only way out is for the government, for the president to do what? To offer parole. But God will never get to a point where he says, these rebels have become so many in hell, let's, let's get some pardon upon them and bring them over to heaven. That's not going to happen. That requires a lot of his power, right? He's displaying his power. The fuel of his wrath is never depleted. God's almighty power should cause everyone to be humble in submission and to obey his commands, to run to his son. We must not murmur at his wise decrees or doubt his royal promises. And thirdly, to display his patience. The attribute of patience that God for so long endures the rebellion and the unbelief and the sinfulness and the blasphemy and the cursing and the soaring and evil objections like this. In effect, God is glorified even in the reprobates as this character, quality of God, of patience, is vividly, clearly, and powerfully displayed. What does it say? He has endured with much patience vessels of wrath. There's no apology for his power. There's no apology for his wrath. But there is also no apology for his patience. And praise God for his patience. Because were it not for his patience, there will be none of us. You know, when you have these objectors in Second Peter chapter 2, and they are ever disputing, bold and willfully disputing chapter 2. But then we come to chapter 3 and we are told that God has shown his patience. And so you are told, the Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. Those who will go to hell will in no doubt say that God was not patient with them. Amen? You remember the rich man in Luke 16? Was he complaining, God, you were not very patient with me. If you'd, only, if you'd only given me a few more years, I could have perhaps repented. Did he say that? No, he did not. He was rightfully and justly in hell. All he could beg for was a drop of water. And lastly, and I think I need to finish there, it is to make known the riches of his glory upon the vessels of mercy. The saving grace and the saving mercy that is bestowed upon vessels of honor shines more brightly and is magnified because 
there are vessels of wrath. If there were no vessels of wrath, you would not have known that you've been saved. You would not have known God's grace, God's mercy. You would not have known your honorable state. Vessels of honor are seen to be all the more glorious when compared to, to the trash can or the, to the toilet bowl. If there were no toilet bowl, there were no trash can, the beautiful china, the porcelain, would not have been so beautiful, so pretty. Until it is compared to the ugliness and the foulness of the vessel of, of dishonor, then that's one of the purposes of God in the vessels of wrath. I'm not going to conclude on God's display of the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy. But let me say this in conclusion. We deserve to be toilet bowls. That's what we deserve. We deserve to be trash cans. We deserve to be hardened in our sins. We need to do we need to realize that that's our place. And if God were to mark our iniquities, not one of us would stand. Not one of us could stand. And so I would not bother to ask any of you who feels like a, a vessel of mercy. Because I don't want to tempt you to sin. We all deserve to be vessels of wrath. But praise God, he intervened by his grace and he caused us to be born again to the living hope in Christ Jesus our Lord. And clearly, if you're not saved, don't sit there and say, well, I feel like a vessel of wrath. I feel like a vessel of dishonor. There's no hope for me. Pastor, you may preach your heart out, but me, I'm a vessel destined to hell. Your sins may be many. Your sins may be much. But God's mercy is more. You look at this chapter and you will see that God will have mercy. The reason why he gave you a chance to come to church to church today, so that you may hear of his mercy, that you may believe in his name, and not live here as a vessel of his honor, a vessel of wrath. God would have you as a vessel of his mercy, because see what he has done. He does not want you to perish in your rebellion. And so he's been very patient with you. He wants you to reach repentance where you would say, Lord, I have sinned against you. I've sin sinned against your law and I've sinned against your grace. Lord, have mercy upon me. Save me. Give me Christ today. Deliver me from my sins. Save me. And the Lord is gracious. 
He's merciful. He's slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. He is. Believe in him today. Don't live here with the load of your sin upon your heart and the guilt upon your conscience. Don't, please. I plead with you. If you don't know what to do or what to say, come talk with me at the end of the service. I'll be available. I'll speak with you and I'll point you to the same truths. I'll show you how God is merciful and gracious. Though your sins be as a scarlet, he says he will forgive you and cleanse you and make you as white as snow. So come, let us reason together, he says. He says, come to me all you who labor and heavy laden, I'll give you rest. He says that. How can you ignore that and continue in your rebellion? Day in, day out. You hear the gospel and you go without benefiting your soul. You live here with guilt. You go back with your guilt. To what? For what? To what benefit? For what? Do you remain in, in that condition? Why can't you call upon the name of the Lord today and you will be saved?